This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. It's Trevor here. David, how are you doing? Doing great, Trevor. Always happy to jump back on and talk about a, another glorious Criterion box set. I think we've got a good one today. I think so too. In fact, um, I don't. I think I've brought this up over the years a little bit, but we, we're celebrating a little bit of an anniversary, you and me, this month in November. Um, it was November of 2013 that I uh, reached out to you and we started uh, collaborating on the Eclipse Viewer podcast. Mm. And I think my first email to you, or one that was pretty close to that, was, you know, maybe a little shyly like Ingrid Bergman when she wrote to Roberto Rossellini, <laughs> like a little a little bit flirtatious, like, hey, I love your work. I'd yeah. love to collaborate. Um, and I, I remember bringing that up in that episode. So... It's also an anniversary for this box set because it was pretty fresh at that time in 2013, toward the end of the year. Feels like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, and I hadn't really marked out that year as far as, um, or, or even that month. I mean, I certainly remember the encounter. You're you're reaching out to me, <laughs> the invitation. Uh, I did feel a sense of flattery. I'll, I'll be candid and say that. But <laughs> now, unlike the subjects that we'll be discussing today, our marriages are still intact, and we yes. have respected yes. boundaries and kind of continue. <laughs> life goes on. But I've certainly gotten a great friendship out of it, and I'm very much, you know, endlessly grateful that you did take that step. I can imagine it felt might have felt a little awkward or you know, how's he how's he gonna take this? And a little presumptuous, I give me a time sure. of day. Well, you know, um I'm not sure I was ready to take a, a step like that, you know, towards any other podcaster who sort of stepped in and stepped out of the arena. But I'm really glad that you did and uh it's been a, a source of just much joy and satisfaction with all the great conversations we've had over the years and just the the friendship that we uh, you know that we share. Yeah, no twins for us. I guess you have a you have twins in your own. Well, in your, I took care of that family. before we uh, had crossed paths, rather. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a lot of podcast episodes to show for for our our collaboration, and it has been a, it has been great. Um, yeah. I'll be honest. Ever since then, I've been anxious to talk about this box set. Um, mm. Listeners probably keep you know clued in. Uh, we are talking about the three films by Roberto Rossellini. Starring Ingrid Bergman, a box set. Three films, as it says in the title, that were made in the early, early, early 1950s. Um, would be, you know, uh, directed by Roberto Rossellini, who uh, we, we've got plenty of films of his in the Criterion collection, including the War Trilogy, that had been, um, you know, a big deal and uh, rightfully so uh, before, the, before he started collaborating with uh, Ingrid Bergman. And we also have, we've, you and I have talked about the Eclipse set, mm -hmm. um, the history films that, that he made after all of this. <laughs> it's nice, right. to, nice to fill in the gap just a little bit. And what an important gap it was. I mean, you know, uh, these were really pivotal films. Uh, and this set does take me back to our days of um, the Eclipse viewer and, and kind of how we would often characterize the different box sets as telling a story. You know, they weren't just a collection of films under one title. Uh, they they kind of took you on a little bit of a journey, a little bit of a, uh, a sequence that kind of had its own kind of narrative arc and flow to it. And this is certainly a set that, that offers much of the same. You've got three films by one of the most important Italian directors, really one of the most important film directors of the 20th century, uh, starring this luminous, magnificent actor, Ingrid Bergman. 
uh, again, one of the, the greatest female actors of all time, in my opinion. I'm sure many others share that. And then you've got also the story of the relationship between them. They weren't just a director and his muse. Uh, they were they were a couple. Um, that the relationship embroiled them in scandal, uh, and you know there's a lot of you know blowback from that. A lot of uh, cause and effect that that came about through their collaboration. And then there's the films themselves that tell us some pretty interesting stories about. Um, you know, it, uh, Europe in a time of post-war reconstruction and, and uh, marriages that were going through various stages of crises, uh, the emancipation of, of women who are looking to find a fulfillment, express their voice in ways that maybe society didn't always understand and accept, and uh, you know, and then just really beautifully uh, crafted tales. You know, the, each of the stories, each of the films, is a very interesting work of art on its own terms. So. Uh, there's all of that plus abundance of, of special features. One of the things you don't get with mm. the clip set is lots of <laughs> excellent, uh, you know, supplements that will kind of give you extra insight and, and just a lot to chew on a beautiful illustrated booklet. Yeah. This is really is a, a, a very impressive achievement by criterion putting this whole set together. Yeah. I'd be curious. I was thinking about this the other day when I was going through the supplements again, how many other sets do we have that are quite this thorough because they're mm. touching on scholarship around the films, criticism around the films, um, techniques of the filmmaking, etc. And then, oh, here, here are their kids, you know, talking about their parents, yeah. you know, who are both famous film uh, film folks and, and th- this personal side to it as well that is really thorough in this in this set it's not just one feature that says oh by the way they they kind of had a thing and it was it was a little bit of a scandal at the time you know it's 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 a pretty big part of the whole set yeah and and really it's it's a family story because you're right the children mm-hmm. were involved mm-hmm. and the children themselves Isabella Rossellini in particular went on mm-hmm. to have a very significant career of her own and um and Ingrid Bergman again I've talked about her talent as an actor but what a fascinating figure she was when I mean, we've had a mm-hmm. chance to talk about the uh, early films of hers and that mm-hmm. one of the final eclipse series sets uh, i think we've discussed sort of maybe incidentally the uh, ingrid bergman in her own words a uh, kind of a, a biographical feature that was put together yeah. and released as a standalone by criterion several years ago um, she really is a, a very compelling personality, and um, her story and, and her significance, just as a as a as a woman uh, of her time, uh, really broke some boundaries and and just gives all kinds of interesting things to think about and to discuss as you just kind of get into the story of her life and and the terms on which she lived it. So yeah, there's just a, mm-hmm. a ton of material here, and I'm looking forward to <laughs> hearing your thoughts as we uh, get into talking about these movies. <laughs> well, and just really quickly on the Ingrid Bergman yeah. in her own words, there are a few, but there really aren't very many standalone documentaries like that in the Criterion Collection. It feels mm-hmm. like it would would fit as a supplement, maybe even mm-hmm. to this set or to that Eclipse set or 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 something like that. But it's its own thing. It's almost like look, we can't fit all of this. <laughs> yeah. we can't fit all of this yeah. into a box set we mm-hmm. we've got to release some of some of these and i really enjoyed that documentary as well because it it does get into you know the the basics of the story 
you know, she's, she's kind of having a, a rough marriage, you know, um, in her late twenties, she has a child and then she goes to Rome and, you know, starts an affair with this director. They make movies together in the first one. She's pregnant with his son. You know, it sounds like a big scandal and of, you know, I'm not trying to, to minimize the, the real effects this must've had on people involved and everything like that. But the Ingrid Bergman in her own words shows that there's there there was a lot going on um it is very nuanced um there is an act of passion there but also an act of courage and an act of of uh emancipation you know they they mm-hmm. she was trying to get um a, an official divorce from her husband um and then there's the tragedy of how long it was before she saw her child again mm-hmm. and that that documentary just it it very much has um a bearing on this time period that we'll be discussing even though I don't feel particularly capable of doing <laughs> yeah, doing right. a really deep dive into their personal lives and everything, it's just part of the background as we get on to these these films that um, she and Roberto Rossellini made together. They made other ones. Um, this is uh, is this kind of referred to as the Journey tr- uh, trilogy or the Voyage trilogy or something like yeah, that loosely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, each one of them having a title of like a you know, Stromboli and Ireland, and then um, Europe, uh, 51, the, the whole continent, and then journey to Italy, uh, you know, a country. So they, they, you know, that's very much interested in the geography and post-war uh, Europe and Italy. But there is this personal um, stuff going on too under the surface that is enriching and fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and especially considering that Ingrid Bergman wasn't just a married woman who left her husband to, you know, take up a relationship and really start a new life with a famous Italian director. I mean, that in itself is pretty significant, but she really was a, a queen of Hollywood. I mean, she came over uh, as a very young woman from Sweden, having made a few films and, you know, established almost legendary status in Hollywood's golden age. You know, we can rattle off, you know, Casablanca, Notorious, Gaslight, you know, she she uh, was nominated for Oscars, won a won a, an Academy Award for Best Female Actor for Gaslight. So she really was at the very top of her game. Um, and as she was, you know, getting older, perhaps she felt the roles were not going to be coming. Maybe she wanted to branch out into artistic directions that Hollywood was not able to support. So you know, there was there's a creative and expressive ambition that's driving her as well as just, you know, the idea of, you know, getting with another guy and, and uh, you know, breaking away from a life for which she must have had some level of discontentment. Uh, it just wasn't done. You know, you could, you could be a, a Hollywood movie star, maybe have your indiscretions or have some, some, you know, hint of a reputation. But what she really did was, was very, very uh, provocative to the point where she was officially denounced on the United States uh, Senate, the floor of the Senate, <laughs> by uh, by one of the s- sitting senators uh, who saw her as a evil and corrupting influence. I was like, wow, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's a pretty harsh verdict, obviously, done from a point of I would say judgmentalism and, and male chauvinism. Uh, again, as you said, Trevor, not to downplay the effect of of the hurt relationships and the strains that it put on on mother and child and, and others involved 
but uh, she really was in some ways kind of a, a timeless figure. And I think you sort of see, at least I sense that in, in just watching her performances in these films and the roles that uh, she and Rossellini kind of collaborated to come up with and to put her in. So it's just a very remarkable accomplishment all the way around. Well, maybe we, before we get into the films, let's, let's talk a little bit about Rossellini himself. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what drew her to write those letters? You know, what's going on in his, in his career? He's, He's just some nobody, right? In Europe, making a few <laughs> films, and yeah. and uh, this this American Hollywood star says, "Hey, you know, I'd like to 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 collaborate." Now, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. of course, that, mm-hmm. that's not not the case. He is he's kind of blown up over there, maybe even beyond his expectations or wildest dreams, or even maybe even hopes. Um, you know, he he wasn't necessarily trying to to become a Hollywood director or anything like that. He's He's making some very important uh, films that are kind of uh, seminal films for a whole way of movie making that mm-hmm. that he's going to inspire. Yeah, I don't think you can look at Rome, Open City, as a as a movie made by somebody with ambitions to international celebrity mm-hmm. and 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 commercial success. Uh, he was, you know, this is a story set in Rome uh, during you know the uh, the wartime era made just after the war had ended but really trying to capture the 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 stress and the the hardships of, of life in that in that time um and using a variety of of techniques you know some professional actors many non-professional actors real locations no artificial lighting or staging uh you know there's a rawness and a and a, and a a clear-eyed realism, you know, which became sort of neo-realism under that banner, mm-hmm. uh, that that was partly born of necessity. You know, the studio was basically decimated. There really wasn't the the facility for making, you know, the 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 dream factory type of productions that uh, Hollywood specialized in and that many European filmmakers aspired to. Like, well, if we can't be Hollywood, we'll do our best job. Uh, you know, that that's kind of out the window at the time of Rome Open City. But what he did capture was just uh, the pathos of, of real people going through this unbelievable hardship of, of a war that they had really little to do with, but it just descended upon them. And uh, that this that film and, and then Paisan, uh, Rossellini's follow-up, the, those were the first two of the war trilogy, and those were the two particular films that inspired Ingrid Bergman to write that very brief uh, kind of letter of introduction saying, hey, if you need a mm-hmm. Swedish actress who can speak good English and knows a tiny <laughs> bit of Italian, uh, te amo, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> uh, you know, it is it is really quite an enigma. Was she really that infatuated with the man himself? Did she know about that? Or did she just sense something in his uh, artistic mm-hmm. bent that says, he seems like a very interesting person. I would like to do some work alongside him you know she's maybe looking at Anna Magnani and she's looking at the other performers in those two films saying that would be new territory Uh, I've done my you know glossy glamour girl stuff I've done the historic uh, you know dramatic adaptations and things of that sort Uh, but what about but about stripping away the veneer and the gloss and, and getting down to what's really mm-hmm. going on. She seemed to want to tap into that. And she saw Rossellini as a unique uh, um, potential collaborator to get with. 
uh, and and uh, maybe help him realize his vision and realize her own vision of doing something that uh, was unlike what she'd been doing already and had already been paid for and was idolized and compensated mm-hmm. and all of that. But she'd done it now. She was ready for something new. And in a rough spot, again, we've talked about it personally, um, maybe a little bit of a desire to get away from what she'd been doing beyond, beyond stretch her, you know, stretch out and do something challenging and completely new. There, there mm-hmm. most likely was also the desire to leave and yeah, yeah. And, and, but, and show some of the rawness. I think we'll, and, and we'll get into that with the very first film, Strom- Stromboli. I mean, that's, I don't think a Hollywood producer or studio would have allowed a star like Ingrid Bergman to be so raw as she is in that film because they, I think they'd worry it would um, affect her image, but she is. Well, amazing. it did. <laughs> yes. It, it, but, but you're right. She, she, she plays a character that um, may have admirers in some circles uh, these days. And I think just the intensity of her performance and the, and the dilemma that she finds herself in, I, I find very sympathetic, but, in the conventions of the time, uh, what was expected of a woman, of specifically of a wife, uh, was to basically take that submissive role to the husband. She did agree to marry him, and she said she knew that he lived on an island in the Mediterranean, and she should do what she's supposed to do. And I think there's a parallel to that. And again, I'm I'm probably out on a limb here, getting into the personal side, mm-hmm. but you know, as as a as a successful female actor. Uh, who had had a, a great career and was married to a professional, uh, I think he was a doctor, uh, you know, it would have been very easy to assume or expect of her that you know, you've made your movies, we're wealthy, we're well-to-do, you're getting older now, you've got children, it's time to set aside the movie career, stop the acting, or maybe act every so often, every once in a while, but but it's basically you've had your time, now it's time to come back home and take care of the mm-hmm. uh, the domestic scene and that just was not uh in her range of interest that was not her experience uh, she lost both of her parents uh, when she was very young so she didn't really have this uh nuclear family ideal of just being there for the kids and focusing and dedicating her life and attention on them and i'm not disparaging that at all i mean that's very close mm-hmm. to the model our own family has followed you know we're very family centered and and focused on our kids and grandkids now and all of that. Uh, but that's not everybody's calling or lot in life. And Ingrid Bergman certainly had abilities, talents, um, ideas, and artistic ambitions that she wanted to pursue. And staying in that relationship, even in that family situation, was just not conducive to what she felt called and compelled to do with her life. And I think we have to honor that, even though she, you know, really paid a pretty heavy personal price with all of the scandal, with all the denunciations, uh, and and just the rejection that uh, that she had to experience. I'm sure she got angry fan mail and and just the pressure of of being told she's wrong by so many people uh, in positions of influence across society, not just in the USA but in Europe as well. Uh, this really was kind of a global eruption that, uh, you know, damaged the the, the reputations of both her uh, and her husband, Roberto Rossellini, who was, of course, a very celebrated director at that time and was seen as a real pioneer and a real trailblazer. 
uh, these films really had had a diminishing effect on his reputation mm -hmm. at the time. They were not commercially successful. Uh, some of the early reviews talked about how miscast somebody like Ingrid Bergman was in in these mm -hmm. roles, and uh, I thought that's that's a really fascinating take. They Mr. Canby, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 just the assumptions of what Ing a person like Ingrid Bergman ought to be doing, you know. Uh, if you just see her as a as a glamour gal, as a as a Hollywood beauty with the left profile showing, because that's her better side, and you know the you know the you know, the gauzy filming techniques and the lighting and all of that, uh, you, you've kind of put her in a box. And uh, yeah. Rossellini wanted to get out of that box and not be boxed in, and I think that's where the the you know, the genius and brilliance of their partnership really comes through in these films. Yeah, I had the same thought when kind of looking at old reviews. There's a Basley, uh, Bosley Crowther one that he's going over all of this. And I wrote in my notes, does he just want glamour? Like, because she is doing a phenomenal job. She is a hateful person in many ways yeah. in this film and um, unattractive in, in that kind of way. You know, just like, hey, this is this is someone who we might see coming down the street and want to cross to the other side she's mm -hmm. just a little bit angry um but it's amazing how she does it and so i i kind of had the same thought is he must have looked at it as hey this is a hollywood star this is not the kind of role for her and 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 mistook that as her being miscast or it not doing a good job in it when i don't know this this might be my favorite performance of hers in this little trilogy in stromboli mm -hmm. But I, yeah, it feels like it probably pushes her the hardest because I mean, just the the reality of where they filmed this thing, <laughs> you know, it's just like what a yeah. what an incredible set, <laughs> what hostile conditions, and and especially coming out of her previous experience, which was about you know working within the studios with all of the attributes, with all of the supporting. Uh, crew members and the and the makeup and the trailers and the you know all of the all the uh, me mechanics that were in place to make her experience you know comfortable. I mean, I'm sure she was treated like a, like a queen. You know, she was Ingrid <laughs> Bergman, and and so even if she didn't demand that, I, I don't know if she was a prima donna in her Hollywood days or anything of that sort, a diva. But she certainly did not have any experience in making movies comparable to this. Even when she was an unknown in Sweden, you know, there was a Swedish film industry. It did have some of those attributes. Uh, this here sort of strips all of that away. They are in a very uncomfortable environment, and she's being asked to really play against, you know, any kind of type. You know, she's not an admirable character. Uh, mm -hmm. except if you can sort of get into yeah. her own headspace and understand the struggle that she's dealing with. Uh, her character, Karen in Stromboli, is a, is a refugee. She's a, a woman of Scandinavian descent. Lithuania, I think she identifies as where yes. she's from. She's had to go to Czechoslovakia, then to Yugoslavia, smuggling herself across borders. And she winds up in a refugee camp with very little prospects. She's just one of a thousand or more uh, lost souls that are penned up and the Italian government is trying to figure out what to do with these people. And certainly we have our own parallels to that here in the USA with uh, undocumented uh, migrants and uh, asylum seekers and, and all sorts of folks 
coming up from the southern border and from other borders as well so there's an analogy that i think we can we can relate Mm -hmm. to but she finds herself you know and and you can tell just from her her presence her her presentation she's a a person of some substance you know she's maybe got some artistic abilities she's you know she's somebody who in a different time and place would be part of the intelligentsia perhaps uh, you know well connected and with uh, with some affluence uh, behind her but that's all been stripped away by the war mm-hmm. and she has such limited options and she ends up making what seems like you know from the outside looking in a very impulsive you know, we could even say foolish choice to marry uh, an italian soldier who's getting ready to return back to his life uh, on this island in the mediterranean that he tells her is where he lives on and she probably has a very different picture in her mind's eye of where where they're Mm -hmm. headed when she agrees to marry him after her uh plea to be able to migrate to argentina uh, is denied so she's she's basically Mm -hmm. stuck but here's a way out marry this guy he seems like a nice guy um and and that'll be my ticket to somewhere other than where i don't want to be it's a it's a great setup, especially as you tied it into just her personal life. I, I didn't even think about that um, when watching it, but you you wonder if when she finally arrives on Stromboli on this island that's just a volcano, basically it looks like a mountain of yeah. ash. Yeah, it's it, like it's like Mount Doom out of Lord of the Rings, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> like this this cone sticking up out of the ocean. With I think a little it actually. Edge. Yeah, yeah. Go I ahead. think it actually is, though, David. I think if I I might be. I might be conflating some things, but somewhere in, in my work on, on getting prepared for this episode, one of these volcanoes, and I kind of think it might be the one in Stromboli, was kind of an inspiration for Mount Doom, by the way. <laughs> when you know, she's, uh, when yeah. she's climbing up at the, the end there, I'm like, this is Sam and Frodo. She needs someone to carry her. You know, I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, right. I mean, the, the, you know, the metaphor is, is so obvious there, but it's it's really powerful and, and really yeah. effective because this is a real place. There are buildings. Yeah. People live on this thing, and it's just you know, unbelievable where she finds herself. I mean, you, you thought it was bad in the prison, in the refugee camp, huh? Here's well, let me show prison. you this. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do I do like tying it to her personal life. It makes you wonder if they were actually filming her when she arrived with Roberto Rossellini, and that's when she gets off and says, this is a ghost island. Yeah. <laughs> that could yeah. have been actual footage of Ingrid Bergman's arrival on Stromboli for the set. I, um, yeah. But, but she seemed, you know, it is interesting because she seems totally game for this. It, oh, yeah. I almost, I almost get from, you know, it's, it's, she, she doesn't have a whole lot of her own words, you know, speaking of the documentary in the other one in this set, we, I'm gleaning a lot of this just from what people are saying about her. Um, but she seemed dedicated and invested. And I think, again, a lot of that comes out in her performance. She probably has some stuff that she can kind of, you know, if she's digging into the, her own, her own method, I guess, um, mm-hmm. to, to rely on, but she just seems to, to sense that this is an important thing to, to show. And I, and I think she does a good job of playing both sides of that line. I think it's Scott Knight on, on one of his uh, posts on Stromboli, uh, says that the, the first time he watched it, he, he kind of, gravitated toward her point of view and how sad it was and you know to find yourself kind of stranded in a different culture that you don't understand 
people have their expectations for you and how you're going to behave that you think are kind of crazy. Um, but they're judging you not just as a person, but like as a moral being um, for these things. And of course, you know, I think he, I think he says that the first time that's what he saw. And then the next time he sees kind of her own role in, in the horrible relationships that she has her own repudiation of culture and, and unwillingness to, to see how to connect with these people uh, for right. a time. And, and I think he says it, well, she's doing both things at once. It's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. she's so good at this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, there, there could have been a, a softer side to her. She could have been more engaged with this mm-hmm. local culture. Certainly they're not her people. She certainly was rejected and judged by them um, somewhat on on a basis of appearance. She's taller than just about every other person that you see on the island. She has an artistic sensibility that doesn't really jibe with the local austerity, you know, uh, the way she decorates their apartment and tries to add her own personal touch to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, she's, she's flirting with basically any guy that she comes into contact with, including a priest, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's stepping over lines and and being fairly selfish and inconsiderate of other people and perhaps drawing some of that judgment uh, based on choices she's making that she could do differently without necessarily having to sacrifice her autonomy or, you know, become yeah. a blind conformist, you know? So some she's a complex deliberate. person. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right. And, and, and she's a complex person who is, you know, sort of finding her way and making mistakes along the way. Uh, and so, you know, obviously each viewer may may approach her from a subjective point of view, whether you identify with her as a misunderstood woman in a difficult circumstance or a woman who's making, uh, you know, uh, immature decisions and, and, and alienating the people that she should be trying to build relationships with. Uh, they're both legitimate points of view based on the material that we're given, you know, to to observe uh, in, in her performance in this film. And it is, it's, it's just really quite a magnificent um, demonstration of, of her talent and just the way she can uh, invest in a character and, and get us to invest in who this character is and where this character is, is going. And another thing that may have a, a role to play, and I'm, I'm trying to confirm this. I, I know that I've read that during filming, she was pregnant with uh, it happened with in child. the course of the filming yeah, i think this was about a four-month shoot which was much longer perhaps than the, i think they anticipated and it wasn't like they were shooting every day for all those months there were times where they apparently weather conditions were not conducive they were trying to get some continuity and it was just it was just a difficult shoot you know you had to bring all your equipment onto this island there was like what one boat a day that came to the island and you know, so so this really stretched out over some time, and I think they were living on the island while they were making it. So, mm-hmm. in the course of the film, I think she did become pregnant, and uh, and that sort of factored into the the finale. And I think you know there is mm-hmm. a discussion in some of the supplements about uh, Rossellini's uh, reliance on improvisation or a, a bit of making it up as as the as you go, and I think some of that happened here as well. Uh, because we do have this incredible setup, and then you have the you know the the tension that exists within the relationship between Karen and her her husband, this kind of pretty simple, 
traditional guy, uh, Italian. He, he's not he's not really a fisherman. I mean, he gets a job working with the fishing boats, but that's not like his trade. He's just a guy looking to figure out who, what he's going to do in life and how he's going to support uh, this this wife that he kind of incongruously came home with. Um, so so yeah so. Ross Lee, he's got this set up, but but how do you how do you wrap this up? How you know where does this story wind up going? And I think that's you know where real life kind of did inform the the development and the progress of these characters. Um, and I do want to get there because I do yeah. want to ask. It sounds like the ending works for you quite well. But before we get there, I, I do want to step back to just the very beginning when she sure. arrives on the island, saying it's a ghost island. Yeah. I think, and let's let's just call this a Hollywood film for a moment. I think they would have softened her character quite a bit, and she would have arrived, you know, maybe a little. They, they would have showed some discomfort, mm-hmm. but she would have tried to make the best of it. You know, give it a go. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, show show that you are at least trying. You're, you're a little mm-hmm. bit uh, disillusioned. You know, maybe you're a little bit in shock, but you're going to give it a go. There's just none of that with her. I mean, from the moment that he takes her home and, and opens the window to show her the view of the, the the Rocky Mountain and saying, you know, isn't this beautiful? She just turns and walks away. Yeah. Um, oh, it, yeah. Yeah. From, from the get go. And I'm so glad that they just start there right away. It's not a slow process of her, you know, slowly being beaten down by culture. I mean, she's repudiating it from the very moment she gets off that boat and realizes my life that I've been trying to get back to, because she had money apparently before mm-hmm. the, the war, this is not it. And what have I latched myself onto? I didn't even know how to leave this place, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, right. I just, I'm just thrilled that they started with her um, feeling that way. And it's her husband who at first is kind of shown as a little bit like, Hey, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and be a little bit, a little bit, you know, understanding, but then he turns cruel as well, you know, and it just kind of shows that the the their relationship just was never meant to to be one of tenderness or understanding, um, because he's going to eventually turn his, um, you know, to protect himself, but also because he has his own culture and she's not a part of it. He's going to start being cruel to her as well, and it just doesn't. I mean, man, what a what a volatile setup this film gets us into and, and goes to. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the traditional, you know, male dominant uh, ethos of of especially of rustic you know, Italian culture. Certainly not only Italians, I and mean, this is a mm-hmm. pervasive mentality all around the world. You know, the husband calls the shots, and if the wife isn't properly um, you know, dutiful and, and, um, subordinate, uh, he's got the right to slap her around and to, you know, to, to make life very difficult for her until she conforms. And even the other women on the Island kind of reinforce that, you know, they, they give her Mm -hmm. scolding looks. Uh, they refuse to engage with her because she is not following the rules. And, uh, and that's the dilemma. And of course there's going to be communication difficulties. They come from such totally different worlds, you know, and, and different expectations of what life can be or should be. And, uh, you're right. The, the fact that she shows up on the Island and is immediately, you know, just disgusted. It's like, have I been tricked? Did he ex- actually tell me what this island in the Mediterranean, I mean, mm-hmm. she thought she was going to Capri or, or Sardinia <laughs> or, or, or one of these, you know, beautiful, like resort yeah. type of islands, not this, 
desolate, dangerous, you know, ominous uh, rocks falling on fire from the sky. Re- yeah, right. Reliant yeah. on fishing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 even the the drudgery and and as we see in the famous uh, tuna sequence, the brutality. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, of course, is a you know pulling in these massive tuna fish uh, after days and days of laborious, patient waiting, uh, springing the trap is of course this huge windfall. Uh, but it's, it's a harsh way to make a living. And it's, it's kind of appalling for her to, to witness this spectacle of, of all of this, this death, you know, of, of these, of, of these very impressive specimens of fish. And, uh, you know, she cannot find the same kind of joy and celebration in it that her husband and all the other men working the boats do and, and by extension the, probably the rest of the village because this is their livelihood this is a this is a great windfall for the the small island population at least those are who are still there and but she recognizes that this is a place where most people with any sense want to get away from <laughs> whenever the opportunity presents itself and and she would love to do that as well and yet she's stuck and how does she find a way out of this dilemma, out of this predicament? And then, of course, the pregnancy <laughs> only adds another layer of, of complication uh, as she's got to decide how to respond to that. If she doesn't have a future with this man that she cannot accept as, as, as her husband or, or her role as being his wife, now a child has entered the situation and she's got to make a decision about that. And, you know, as, as we kind of, you know, move towards the conclusion, it does conjure up all of these big existential questions about life's purpose, why things happen the way they do. What do you make of it all? And, uh, yeah. And, and Rossellini goes there to questions of God and faith and, and mm-hmm. meaning of it all. And, uh, again, that's probably not what you're going to see in a Hollywood production. It's going to be more about the, the tensions in the relationship. And if it's a standard Hollywood ending, they're going to find some sort of rapprochement at the end where they find <laughs> a way to make it work out or at least, you know, give the impression of, of uh, you know, living to see a better day and, and hoping for uh, a, a warmer and more positive future as this child is about to be run into the world. <laughs> it's like the ending of, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Um, for people, but I'm a Gilda. Have you seen Have you watched oh, yeah. Gilda? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I love that movie, but at the end of it, when they come back together, you're like, Oh, that's really sweet. Oh my word. These <laughs> two are horrible for each other tomorrow. Yes. After the movie's over, they are going to be abusing one another again. <laughs> and that's, yeah, certainly it just wouldn't have made much sense to go there, but it also would, would have just really minimized the power of the film and what it's trying to, really examine it, which mm-hmm. just has to be so important in a, in any time period, but this is post-war Italy. I mean, our willingness to try and, and say, look, everything's just fine. Um, I think really damages our even cultural psyche as we move on from horrible things. I mean, this is in a way about her trauma um, of the war and then being re-traumatized um, in, in what she hoped was, a, was an escape and a new life and finding it, you know, potentially worse, but at the very least, uh, you know, still a prison, still, still something that basically says you don't get to be who you want to be. And now you don't even have a connection with anybody around you. 
Um, right. Yeah, and she's stuck with the new obligations. I mean, at least when she's in a refugee camp, she's just her own person. Yes, she has to live under those rules, and there's certainly limits on what she can do and where she can go. But now she has, at least uh, in society's eyes, an obligation to be with this mm-hmm. man and to behave herself in certain ways that, you know, she's really questioning. She's actually not just questioning, she's challenging, she's rejecting. She's saying, no, that's not the terms that I'm going to live my life. And that's a very forward and, um, you know, even kind of an aggressive stance for a woman to take, especially in such a patriarchal culture as the one she's landed on in this island. So yeah, the war may be over, uh, but the displacement has has not diminished at all. Really quickly, <laughs> just kind of as a minor tangent, you talked about the uh, tuna fishing sequence. Yeah. Have you had a chance yet on the Criterion channel to watch the documentary shorts by Vittorio De Seta? No, I've heard, I think maybe I've watched one of them. It was about maybe a year ago or soon after mm. they, they first came out. But yeah, I mean, they, they looked really intriguing and it would be a nice sort of sit down yeah. to get to work on some of those. Yeah. I, I loved them. They are they are from the 1950s. They're very short. Mm-hmm. I want to say yeah. mm-hmm. some t- sometimes 10, 20 minutes is all. Mm-hmm. But they they show these little slices of life. And I just thought it's it's great that in a film like this in Stromboli, uh Rosalini is still saying, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna show the life here. We're not just going to allude to it. We're not gonna show him coming home only. We're gonna go out on the boats. We're gonna see them bringing in some tuna. We're going to, you know, it, it's maybe not quite as rigorous as, as, you know, these other documentaries that I'm talking about are in terms of just being there, but right. that's a pretty good portion of the film. And uh, again, I think just underlines that this, that some of the realities of this place, you know, they have their, their way of getting by, they have their, their rituals and their routines that have helped them survive over the years. And we get to participate in one of those a little bit in, in the mm-hmm. film itself, um, even even more than than uh, Bergman's character does. <laughs> you know, she's just kind of back home and we get to see the hard work a little bit yeah. and and the exhaustion. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a portrait of a very uh, rarely observed culture or a, a social situation, I mean, it is very fascinating just sort of from that anthropological point of view you know i i couldn't help but think especially with with the you know the slaughter of the tuna and then that really awful little ferret and rabbit scene it's like what do yeah. we have going on trevor with all of these images of animal cruelty yeah, <laughs> in these films like tuki buki and and the <laughs> uh the world cinema project what was the uh the one, the one with the that, dog they yeah yeah the where they, they shoot the dog so it's like yeah we have this kind of unfortunate streak of uh having to deal with animal violence in our, in our conversations, but setting that aside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and they do seem like that's probably the most, uh, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but on the nose part of this film Mm. is the ferret and the the rabbit and the cruelty and and her reaction to it. Um, And how he just thinks it's kind of cute and funny and a joke. And, you know, why are you so offended by this? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and and makes her much more sympathetic in a way than maybe she otherwise would have been. So, but yeah, pretty pretty horrific still to sit there and, and watch it. So yeah, but. yeah, yeah. It's, it's very unflinching, and there's no uh, there's no CGI. This is the real thing, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. So 
should we move on to Europe 51? I feel like we've got going to have well, a lot to I, talk about with all of these. Well, do we want to just kind of touch on the finale? I mean, you know, the, the big epic conference. I mean, we first we have the volcano, you know, like mm-hmm. I say, spitting hot rocks. And, and there's a almost a bit of a danger or a, a thrill scene, you know, with, with uh, a, a mild eruption of the volcano. But certainly enough to just, you know, do damage and cause danger. But then there is the, the big sort of, uh, you know, encounter uh, and and the way that Rossellini stages it. Again, that's Ingrid Bergman up on top of this freaking volcano <laughs> with with smoke and dust. And you know, there may have been some fans <laughs> blowing steam in from off screen. I don't know. But the, there might not it. have but, been, though. I but mean, but <laughs> right. I, I mean, it, it looks like really hostile conditions. And um, just getting up to the top of that cone had to be a bit of an ordeal and uh, maybe a huge ordeal. And, and again, getting the camera equipment, this is, this is not, you know, handheld steady cams, you know, it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a very impressive um, sort of cinematic event that's going on up there. And uh, yeah, maybe to some viewers, it's going to come across as a little bit heavy handed as she's having this, you know, this uh, dialogue with God, or I guess it's a monologue where she's just projecting onto the, uh, to the Almighty, her her quests mm-hmm. or her her questions, uh, her her searching for answers, and um, but you know, my goodness, she is so incredibly beautiful in those scenes too. The, the 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 picture of her on the cover of the box set is is from that finale, and mm-hmm. just the radiance of her face and the 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 light that's that's natural morning light. Uh, on the slope of this volcano um, where she's, you know, in character, at least in this film has spent the night after kind of going through this dark night of the soul, she wakes up and there is this kind of sense of peace and reconciliation that wraps up the movie. She's, she's had this encounter. She's kind of plumbed the depths. What we don't know as an audience is what is she going to do now? Is she going to go back to her village and her husband is she going to go to the other side of the volcano and get to this larger village where she can hop a ship and, you know, hit the road and, and off to some new life that uh, she has no idea what, what else she's getting into. And mm-hmm. Rossellini, I think very courageously leaves us right there, like right at she, that moment of tension. Yeah. She might never come down the mountain. <laughs> yeah. She may yeah. die up there for all, for all we know. And, and I think it's just, yeah, because, uh, and I think he says in one of the interviews uh, that are printed in the booklet, he says, well, what she does next would be the start of another movie, which I might tell if I ever feel like it needs <laughs> to be told. But he doesn't really want to give you that satisfaction or, yeah. or indication. Uh, he's putting us in that in that situation, in that dilemma. Where What would you do? And what would influence you to step this way or that or just remain there? You know, it's I don't know. To me, uh, I, I, I appreciate uh, ambitious uh, presentations of these types of questions that don't always, you know, take the easy way of giving us the answer or even an answer. Figure it out for yourself. I, I really feel like that's that's something unique to what Rossellini did that few other directors would have joined him in uh, following that path. It makes it resonate and vibe, you know, echo in your mind a lot longer than if if the filmmaker gives you the answer. And uh, because then you have a a seeming endorsement um, Mm -hmm. of a certain pathway, but here you're forced to grapple with all potential conclusions and routes. And that's what to me makes this uh, a very strong film. 
a little heavy. I mean, I, I, you know, yeah. they know that that cinematic ending, you know, is going to be a kind of a, a go for it. And I, I, I do actually understand if people are kind of turned off by, I feel like the film gets a little heavier in its, um, you know, metaphors and, and these kinds of things as it goes on. Uh, versus the beginning where it is a little bit more directed at the culture and the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more that I think about it and the, you know, this is, I, I watched these when they first came out back in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more that I respect and, and feel like these will continue to grow in my estimation, even as, you know, as the years go on. Yeah. Yeah. These are all revisits for me as well. I, I pretty much made a priority to get these in, you know, soon after the, mm-hmm. the box that was released and, and I've, you know, kind of touched on them here and uh, off and on over the years. Uh, but you know, this is my first time of really sustaining uh, going through all the supplements and all the other stuff. And I, my admiration for yeah. both Rossellini and Bergman grew quite a bit but I've been on a pretty upward trajectory with them. You know, we covered <laughs> the, uh, the war trilogy on criterion cast, kind of our main episode line. And, and again, going back to visit some of Rossellini's later stuff, the things that he was doing on TV, uh, we covered, I think, uh, Josh Hornbeck and I talked about Socrates, you know, a later <laughs> Rossellini film. I just, what a fascinating character he, he really is as a director. He's not really a, you know, a cinematic, you know, in love with the movies. He just uses film as a way to express ideas and engage his audiences uh, who want to follow along and, and have that conversation with him. Well, I do appreciate us mm-hmm. digging into the, the, the ending a bit more there, but yeah. should we move on to Europe 51 oh, yeah. at this For point? Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Another interesting film with an interesting history because we have uh, we have a couple versions of Strom- Stromboli as well, an English and an Italian language version. And mm-hmm. similar with Europe 51, we have an English language version that's 109 minutes, and then the Italian language version at 118 minutes. And here, I actually think the differences are quite stark um, mm-hmm. in a way. There's, there's, there's more than just a language difference and a few little scenes, whatever. Um, there are reasons that the English language version is shorter, and I'm anxious to kind of hear your thoughts on all of that. But um, as we as we set up Europe 51, we have Ingrid Bergman again, um, and she is playing a very different character from the one in Stromboli. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here she is rather wealthy. Um, after the war, she and her husband have have you know they're they're wealthy socialites essentially. They have money. They have. Uh, soirees and various dinners and events all the time uh, in order to you know keep their relationships and their business and political things uh, moving but they also have a young son who is feeling neglected and the the relatively early in the film the son dies we'll talk about how and such here in a bit which of course changes everything and uh, Ingrid Bergman's character uh, starts to frighten people because she seems to go mad, right? She seems mm. to, to not have any sense yeah. of reality or what's appropriate anymore. So there's the cultural uh, difference again from what she wants and feels is appropriate to go forward and the expectations of spouse and doctors and lawyers and friends and other socialites and business people. And it doesn't get her into a good place, but she, you know, as the film goes on, 
sticks with where, where she's going, even though no one else understands it. So just a little bit of, of a setup for this particular film as we then maybe move into some of the details and mm-hmm. get some of some some thoughts on it. Um, I, I will just say this is the one I like the least of, of these three films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I don't entirely know why. And I'm very susceptible, as you know, to <laughs> to really moving fast onto a different train. So <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll convince you how wrong you are. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> it. I'm always willing, always willing. And but again, in thinking about this afterwards and in, in this case, probably by watching the Italian language version makes me appreciate it a lot more than I did on a first viewing 10 years ago when I just watched the English language version Mm -hmm. and kind of thought, Mm -hmm. well, that looked a little bit, a little bit, you know, here you go, Trevor, here's your lesson in life. Now, now move on and be a good boy, you know, and and it's a little more rich and nuanced and um, enticing than that this time around for sure. Oh yeah. Well, you know, definitely we, we do see a different side of the um, imposing and imperious perhaps uh, presence of Ingrid Bergman. She's kind of, hard charging at the very beginning of the film as she's setting up for an important dinner date and her son is kind of asking for a little bit of her time and attention and she's you know she's kind of throwing little bits his way and you know she'll she'll engage him but she's clearly got other priorities Uh, now i I, in this in this film are this is this an american couple who's relocated to rome uh for business purposes i believe that's the case they're not they're not like native Italians. She certainly is not. Mm-hmm. She's never cast as an Italian, even in the films where she speaks Italian or she, you know, she's, she's got Italian dialogue. She's always an outsider coming into the Italian setting. But here, I believe the whole family is from out of the country. And so here's a young son who's probably around maybe nine, 10 years old or so. Um, yeah. And, and so he's not really found his niche. I think it's fair to assume, you know, he's basically just baggage that's been toted along uh, with his well-to-do parents. And he's probably, you know, in some kind of a, a bit of a bubble. Uh, in fact, there's a conversation later on at one of the dinner get togethers about how children of his age really belong in boarding schools, which is to really, you know, shunt him away from any kind of familial affection, which he seems to be looking for from his mother. And uh, and he has what turns out to be kind of a suicidal impulse from all of that. And, you know, I one of the reasons that I, I feel like this film really did connect with me is because it does get into mental health and... Uh, society's perception of what's sanity, uh, what's normal, and and who is the misfit. I mean, I you know, as I think I've made known in various ways over the years, I work in mental health treatment. That's my profession. Uh, I'm an administrator, not a clinician or therapist or anything like that, but but still very much in that world. And so, you know, to me, the idea of a suicidal child and a woman who's institutionalized and has to go through, you know, 1950s European version of psychiatric treatment was was both plausible and very interesting to me just to see how that was portrayed on screen. And I would say it's probably glossed up a little bit, you know, just for the sake of a movie. Um, but it's still a fascinating subject matter, just subjectively speaking for me. Um, and I can definitely um, relate to the the situation, you know, um, I moved around a lot as a child. I had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, displacement in my own upbringing and didn't always like where I was at 
as far as where my parents' decisions put me. So, you know, there, there were elements in this film that's like, yeah, I, I can identify with what's happening on the screen here. You know, my parents hosted events of this sort and I was called on to be, you know, kind of a, a server <laughs> in those situations. So, so, so th- these are all situations that, you know, got, got me relating to a little bit of my own experience, but, but again, watching Ingrid Bergman go about her, her character's journey uh, as she recognizes that there's been a, a hollowness and a, a facile, um, empty, you know, pursuit of prestige and respectability and perhaps material affluence. And again, doing what was probably prescribed to her by her upbringing, by the, the conventions of the society that she's part of. And when all of that is kind of torn away from her due to the death of her son um, by a suicide. Uh, he doesn't die instantly, but it is, you know, recognized that he he threw himself off that off that staircase and he did end up dying of his injuries after a, a few days. Um, that basically just pulls the bottom out, you know, of her world and she has to reevaluate everything and you know, while there's some understanding by her husband and others around her that, yes, this is a terrible event and there's going to be some grief, there's going to be some loss, where she lands in this process just is is way too far out for, you know, the mainstream of society to, to uh, recognize or to accept or to certainly allow her to just play out that vision. And again, she does things similar to Karen and uh, Stromboli that others would look at and say, you know, she's really, she has gone too far. She is making self-centered decisions. She's not thinking about the well-being of her husband. She is maybe even grandiose or unrealistic about what she can accomplish or what she should do in response to the the sorrows and the sadness of the world and, and its hurts, its needs. Uh, she she has this massive eruption, uh, this birth of an empathetic side to her that had maybe been suppressed for, for many years. Uh, is she overcompensating? Is she trying to put herself in this messianic role? Or is she opening her eyes and seeing the world as it is and realizing that the insanity is by the people who are, you know, operating from positions of privilege and power and influence who could be doing something to make life better for the masses, but are very selfishly only focused on their own comforts and their own needs. That's, that's really the, the, the core uh, dilemma of this film that Rossellini titled Europe 51. Like, wow, what a statement, you know, this is this, this is the state of Europe in the year of 1951, what shall we do about this society? Let's let's mend our ways and make for a better world. <laughs> Again, you should should you know have a period of mourning, but then you should be able to move on in business as usual. That's for everyone's betterment. Yeah, and, exactly. And I, her name is Irene, and and George is her husband. They are well. He is American. I actually don't remember if she's yeah you know particularly American or not. But um, but yeah, they there's that sense of hey, we've had this very horrible thing the rest of us are going to be able to move on and, and you aren't what's what's happening here. And I, and I do think you, you hit the nail on the head with some of my like, you know, yeah. <laughs> feelings of is she overcompensating? Does it feel like she is not just trying to become a saint, you know, be, by, by the nature of what she's doing, but is she also 
trying to become a saint, you know, like sees herself in that saintly role of like, hey, here I am. Here I am, Julieta Messina, you know, the, the great <laughs> Julieta Messina. Yeah, I'm here yeah. to to save you. And I think, again, the film probably has it both ways to an extent uh, to its to its betterment. I think that mm-hmm. um, I definitely think that Rossellini here is a little bit more leaning toward, hey, she is she is the this is the perspective we want. We we don't think she's descending into madness and I don't either. But I, I think he's more approving of of some of her actions than disapproving but it's still there to be thought about. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of think, Hey, can you not just communicate with your family a little bit? Tell yeah, tell them a right. little bit more clearly why you are acting this way. It's, they, they do think you're aloof. They do think that you are having an affair. Everyone thinks you're having an affair. Can you not help them, you know, just a little bit of communication to help them see that that's not the case and maybe get them on board even and she yeah, seems unwilling to do that. Right. She's it's like, I will, yeah. I will, I will not, uh, you know, uh, what's the, what's the phrase? <laughs> I, I will not honor the argument by responding right. to it or something. Yeah. Right. It's basically <laughs> like the idea that you would suspect me of having an affair is so beneath my dignity that I won't even respond to that question. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. She, she could clearly, she could clear this up. She could make a few statements of saying, you know, I'm not insane. I'm not, you know, a, a danger to myself or others. Um, but the fact is, she does not want to go back home. She does not want to be back part with her right. husband. She says right. very explicitly, if I was to go back to him and just try to even live a sheltered life uh, or be a volunteer do-gooder, you know, in some kind of social reform project or, or you know, go work at the food bank or, or whatever the case may be, she would be sucked right back into that, you know, bourgeois ornament, you know, the, the hostess of the dinner parties. Um, maybe they'd try to have another child and, and replace the one that they've lost, but she cannot bring herself to return to that life. That, that, that station in life, that role has just lost all of its legitimacy to her. And again, it's this profound determination that she's not going to concede on this very fundamental principle that she's kind of discovered and and that's again another very remarkable statement because most people men and women i think probably find a place of compromise you know to just to kind of go go along to get along and she just doesn't do that um and and so yeah is does society have a place for somebody like her and and where can she go well she we see where she goes yeah and your your statement about a compromise, I think, hits another point too. Compromising living in both worlds, not yeah. just the relationships and such, but I can still be a privileged, wealthy person and descend, you know, every once in a while to helping these other folks. You know that that that's a problematic perspective. As much as we need to have more of us willing to reach out and, and, and do things, um, for those around us, it can be a little problematic if you always see yourself as condescending to, mm-hmm. to others in order to help them. It just, it, you know, there's still a bit of, uh, messianism <laughs> to that in, oh. in a, in a d- dangerous way and in a way yeah. that's dehumanizing. Um, and she doesn't do that. She's not, she's just not willing to say, I'm going to live in both worlds. I'm going to be the benefactress of these people. I'm going to use my, my, I'm going to stay here so that I can continue to generate and use my position and my wealth 
to go out and make these changes. And I don't know if she makes the right choice. You know, it's really hard because she does take herself out of the game a little bit too. You know, yeah, um, yeah. By the, at the end of the film, she has a lot of people who really appreciate what she's willing to do, but she's kind of put herself in a position where she can't do more. It, there, it's it's a weird conflict because I, I certainly have no idea what the right, a better way to go forward would be. She makes mm-hmm. a, a hard and honorable choice that also has some negative consequences that work against her own goals. And I I do love that part of this film is trying to grapple with that a little bit. And, and because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, it, it's hard. Well, it is because, you know, her, her again, the society, this this world at that time in Europe 51 or this, you know, part of Rome where she's kind of living doesn't really give her a a lot of options. I mean, her role, you know, in society's eyes is you be a good wife to your husband. Your husband is a man of wealth and privilege. He's showing you a very good, comfortable life. Yes. You've had a terrible, tragic event. Your, your, your son took his life, but you know, there's other situations that happen in the film where, where, you know, death intrudes by accident or by poverty and deprivation. She sees that there's suffering all over the place and, and, and pain and loss and grief hits us from all different angles. Obviously with her son, there's that sense of maternal guilt and failure, her inaction, her lack of attention had a role in driving him to this, you know? And so that's, that's a particularly painful um, cross that she has to bear but once she's kind of stepped out of that role, you know, really it seems like the only option that the society is willing to give her uh, is either imprisonment when she's seen as being guilty of, of allowing this, uh, you know, bandit, this, this robber to escape. Uh, she's very much in danger of going to jail, except for the fact that she's married to a wealthy man and that creates some scandal. And so they're going to insulate the wealthy man from the problems caused by his difficult wife by getting her into a psychiatric institution. So, um, right. She, she could have become a social reformer and there's an interesting dialogue that she has with a priest toward the end of the film where he realizes she is tapping into this very profound kind of spiritual perspective, which is a, again, another interesting sort of background to this film was right after Rossellini had shot, uh, the Flowers of St. Francis, a kind of a, a neo-realist portrayal of uh, the life of St. Francis of Assisi and his followers, uh, the question was posed to him, what if St. Francis lived nowadays? What if St. Francis was a woman? How would that operate? You know, how would that go down? Because obviously St. Francis is a almost universally revered uh, spiritual figure. I mean, even non-Christians or people who don't really engage with Catholicism on any level. There's an admiration for St. Francis his, his gentility, his, his willingness to suffer on behalf of the poor, his rapport with animals and nature and creation. That's a very positive, wholesome, uh, appealing message across, you know, all levels of society. But that's St. Francis, the you know, mythologized figure of the past in some ways. What if somebody in our society right now 
addressed it and confronted it with those same types of principles of, of questioning the value of wealth and privilege and and the exploitation of the working class. I think that's another big discovery for her is like, while they live their lives of ease and comfort and cocktail parties and, you know, furnishings and clothing and, and all, all the goodies of life, she sees that they are just such a privileged, tiny elite compared to these masses that are, you know, every day for hours and hours each day forced to, you know, endure the grim uh, environment of the, of these factories of this industrial miracle that's producing all of this wealth that, that, you know, the, the, the wealth and the prosperity uh, created by those industrial processes is, is what fuels her lifestyle. And yet at what cost to these, you know, single women raising six children by themselves and, and, you know, the, the, the drudgery mm-hmm. and the drone work and all of that, these are, you know, the big eye openers. She's been sheltered and protected from all of that. They haven't really allowed her to grasp what's actually going on until she sees it for herself and just realizes there's this fundamental injustice to it all. And yet when she encounters Julieta Messina, and what a delightful discovery that was to have these two really <laughs> fantastic female actors, two of my favorites of the whole 20th century. And also I'm like, whoa, that's Julieta Messina. I, I didn't I didn't <laughs> catch them the credits that she was going to be in this film, but what a what a wonderful scene say, that the two of them share together. And Julieta Messina is hardly just this innocent little, you know, downtrodden victim. You know, she's she's kind of creating her own problems herself, you know, right? With, with her and relationship, has some of her own men. solutions, <laughs> exactly. And and they're not the solutions that uh, that uh, uh, Irene has for her. You know, uh, she wants to live life on her own terms, and she wants to go get with a new guy. And and uh, that's not the most practical, saintly way of going about it either, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It's a it's a tricky th- you know again it, there's just so, so much to grapple with and and I'm glad yeah. that they don't just have um, uh, Irene kind of see her role again as well I guess I better continue with these soirees and these events because as as we cr- keep the capital coming in for these businesses that gives these you know that gives jobs to these poor people and yes. that's my role you know it's I'll, like oh boy i'll become a philanthropist you know that that's what I'll do. <laughs> that that'll be the solution yeah. <laughs> well what did you think of the two versions of the film and kind of the differences there in a little bit more explicit and dark i think in the italian version. yeah yeah uh, the italian i mean watching in the english is convenient and accessible and and i i like it for that yeah. reason and i and, and they I, are I'm english saying, characters I right mean, right english but right but but i think having the italian throughout the entire film and also the additional scenes you know i did you know i watched the two versions fairly far apart i just watched the italian the other mm-hmm. night whereas I, I rewatched uh europe 51 about a week and a half, two weeks ago. So I don't really have a, a categorical, you know, listing of what the differences are, but it just, it felt like the Italian versions of both Stromboli and this just had more of that grit or f- lived in feel to them or something yeah. like that. And and that's, that's I would what agree. I, yeah. mm-hmm. It's a little, to me, it was softened. The, 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 the death is a little more explicit of the yeah. child in the mm-hmm. Italian version, a lot yeah. more explicit what happens, I think, than, than in yeah. the English version. Um, and it's weird, but even though you know in the English version what happens, there is there is something about that that makes it softer and makes her her response 
I don't know. It, it changed it for me when when it's more explicit what he's going through, the son, yeah. and and why he, you know, that and and him jumping. It, it it does. It's not like I want to see that kind of stuff on screen all the time, but it just makes it. Um, I don't know. It, it it sets the film up to a different thing than just this thing that happened in the background. Ah, oh, this tragedy, and now you're going to be this way. It's like th- there does need to be a response to this. Even yeah. though you can imagine it, there's just something about having it put there on the screen a little bit more. It's not a huge difference, but it, I guess, just enough to shift the tone slightly, yeah. and and then build on that tone rather than a, a one that's a little bit, you know, rounder corners and such. Well, and I think just the sonics of it, I, the Italian language when it's spoken, even though I don't really mm-hmm. understand Italian beyond "te amo," <laughs> but but the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the the passion that comes through, the the energy um, that I think that's a part of it. You know, just the the rapidity of how Italian is spoken and, and just how it flows, especially when you're seeing Julietta Messina speaking in dubbed English. It's like, ah, come on, you know? <laughs> that's just not her, you know. But um, also, I think the you know, it's another sort of sheltering for the English that is Hollywood American audiences where they're going to take some of those rough edges off because viewers in, in the USA really aren't, aren't ready for this or or that's just not going to be allowed. And so mm-hmm. uh, there is a sense of being kind of, uh, you know, sheltered or, or having the truth, the full truth concealed from us in some, in some of those English versions. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, David. Well, should we move on to the final film of this set, Journey to Italy, which, you know, this this is kind of timely. It, in the last uh, Sight and Sound poll uh, from a decade ago, this film was the only one of these that showed up on it. I, somewhere in the 40s. I can't remember. And we're about to get another mm-hmm. one. And I'm kind of wondering if it'll stay on the list or not. But is it safe to say that despite the you know these other films and their qualities that journey to italy is the the famous film that like the the kind of the gem of the collection at least in 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 its public um idea oh i think yeah. yeah i think i think the overall polish and the um yeah like you've already said the reputation of the film definitely puts journey to italy at the top i think stromboli has a pretty strong impact as well just maybe it's the beginning of this collaboration and this kind mm-hmm. of definitive moment in in ingrid bergman's career in particular but yeah i think i think journey to italy is probably the one that is the most accessible as well i mean it's a it's a situation that feels very grounded in reality maybe even more to contemporary sensibilities as well it's it's a it's a marriage like all three of the marriages in, in each of these films that's that's very strained uh, but this one feels the most relatable because it is about you know the, the 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 dilemma that a couple finds themselves in when whatever brought them together just doesn't really seem to be you know holding holding them in close connection anymore and mm-hmm. and they've got to figure out where do you go from here and and this is a a story of a couple uh, on their way uh, to uh, pick up an estate that they've inherited, um, you know, 
perhaps uh, surprisingly. I'm not sure exactly how the circumstances mm-hmm. were, were received, but they they have access to this beautiful piece of property, and they're going down to Italy uh, from England, I believe, uh, to yeah. to take care of business, and you know pr- presumably just sell sell it off, you know, get the material proceeds and get this little. Uh, inconvenience out of their life but in the meantime uh, out of their social milieu that they're used to you know living in uh, they're just spending time together and finding out they just don't have all that much in common anymore in fact there's a kind of a contempt that's developed between the two of them Mm -hmm. and and i use that word specifically because it does have a pretty profound influence on a film of that name that came Mm -hmm. out some you know maybe uh, eight eight years later or so so uh, of course there's Jean-Luc Godard's uh, <laughs> contempt or limitry so uh, you know the the tensions between a husband and a wife that's kind of the the core here that I think a lot of viewers can uh, find find some analogy in their own life experience to more than you know having lost a child to suicide or being married uh, as a way to get out of a refugee camp status so, <laughs> uh, those are a little bit more rarefied circumstances yeah, and I think another reason this film stands out, um, and and likely, it, it, well, maybe the most likely reason that it would find its place on the the sight mm-hmm. and sound list again, is it's seen as almost an instigator of the French New Wave. You know, you've mm-hmm. got these these yeah. filmmakers uh, who are critics in the 1950s who see this film, and then you know, and then over the next decade or so, we get things like contempt and we we get things like um the alienation trilogy from antonioni mm-hmm. uh we get films uh that tend to be a little bit more focused on characters walking different directions right there mm-hmm. in front of your face who are mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. uh different dialogues almost uh, you know that that are that are comfortable sitting down and and feeling like, hey, we're just watching these two travel um, around, but you know, playing with the the set a little bit, not the set, but playing with the the staging of as the characters move around to to show these this this wandering. I mean, um, yeah. and so I think that that might be another reason why it it's seen maybe as, a, as, as I mean, even Scorsese in his introduction to it kind of says this is the beginning of modern cinema. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean by that, sir? Yeah. You know, but I and think, Richard Brody I think says the same thing in his written essay as well. Yeah. You know, so so yeah, I, I think I think it's the sharpness of the dialogue, the fact that this is mm-hmm. not a, a sentimentalized, you know, or melodramatic conflict between a, a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are two intelligent adults who've just basically decided they don't really like each other, and they're going to let each other know it in in various ways. I mean, you think mm-hmm. about where Ing- Ingmar Bergman, Ingmar Bergman that is went with some of his films i mean he he had had already lacerating dialogues in some of his earlier films mm-hmm. that was something that he you know certainly picked up from some of his influences in scandinavian theater ibsen and, and dreyer and all of that but this film really seems to, to launch that so you think of bergman's scenes from a marriage and then even into more recent filmmakers kurostami's certified copies i think had a pretty strong linkage to this film in fact, I actually went onto the Criterion page to see um, related <laughs> films, and I was disappointed that they did not have certified copy connected to Journey to Italy because I think they really yeah. do kind of go together. Um, That's a great missed, idea for a double missed, feature, by the way. Yeah, oh, abs- for sure, uh, missed opportunity there. In fact, they they put Stromboli as a 
related oh, come on. Well, of course, come yeah, on. that's a, that's lazy <laughs> it's, it's it's in the same stinking box set right <laughs> but but you know and and also the fact that you've got um beyond just ingrid bergman you've got george sanders another pretty significant yeah. and polished actor who has his own gravitas uh, his own kind of sourpuss charisma and all and of that, that voice is, that oh yeah voice the voice yep yeah. And then there's also the aesthetics. I mean, I, I really feel like the the rep, uh, the production of of um, presentation, I say, of, of ancient works of art. You know, these huge statues and and just the the sense of t- epic time and 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 again the kind of the just the the whole cycle of life. You know, the the excavation of Pompeii that was caught at a pretty mm-hmm. fascinating moment in in that that in that archaeological discovery when there's still so much of the site that is still buried at that point. But you're starting to see the emergence of some buildings and some figures, and and of course the very unforgettable cast of of the two uh, vic- two of the victims of uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and all of that. So you've just got a lot of really interesting themes playing themselves out here in this in this film. And mm-hmm. once again, Ingrid Bergman is just absolutely riveting in in, in her intensity and, and just her presence in, in, in this film as well as the other two. So and in a way it's a film about boredom. You know, yep. with alienation and, and mm-hmm. boredom, they they simply don't know what to do with each other. And even when they're at the estate, like George Sand's char- Sanders' character, he he can't he can't sit still. He doesn't want to sit there and soak <laughs> up the sun. And right. She right. often seems like she's about to fall asleep. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just got all these elements to it that that I f- I find really refreshing. Even though we've we've seen them play out quite a bit over the the you know films. Uh, since but it just it's kind of a unique way of looking at this because it feels in a way because of the actors and all that it feels like it could be a hollywood film oh but well, yeah it's yeah. you know it's, it's certainly an english language film this is not mm-hmm. one that has an italian dub version um but yeah it, in many other ways it does not it, it is not a hollywood film Right, but I think it has at least the potential to be one. I mean, it looks the most um, refined. You know, I mean, it's it's a very clear, sharp image, in in both Stromboli and, and maybe to a somewhat lesser degree in Europe Fifty One. You sort of get a sense that Rossellini is still working with varying degrees of film stock and and, less and than lenses, positions. lenses, the, all the of that, lenses right? he had to have had for this film to show these these art galleries and these cityscapes yeah. and these, you know, dis- destructive places and, and uh, Pompeii and all that. He, 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 he had a repertoire in this one. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and he knew how to use it. <laughs> I yeah. Love, yeah. I love so that I, art scene, that art gallery well, scene. Absolutely. Film, it's, it's classic <laughs> uh, just on its own terms, just as a, a, a you know, again, a, a visual study of these really incredible pieces, these marble sculptures from, you know, centuries centuries ago thousands of years ago even um just just a very remarkable experience and to have it all captured so in such beautiful cinematography it feels like he probably had uh a a top-notch crew on this as well so i i didn't really get into a lot of the study of the production of this film but it feels like this is rossellini's bid to try to do something that's a little bit more commercially uh palatable you know um because at this point, his career had been kind of 
I won't say it's a tailspin, but it was definitely on the decline. He was seen as the guy who did uh, radical, impressive things in the immediate aftermath of World War II, but in the eyes of popular audiences and critics, he kind of lost it. He was still making movies. He was still getting backing, but it was not, you know, from big studios or or with, uh, you know, kind of commercial returns in mind. And And I think it's, it feels like because he's got the casting and, and this relatable setting uh, and situation uh, that, that maybe he was hoping to, to you know, catch fire again. It, it didn't really happen that way, but I think the film has certainly grown in reputation over the years. And a lot of it is, as you say, you know, the, the, the young Cahiers du Cinema crowd that embraced yeah. uh, Rossellini as a whole, but this film in particular, uh, obviously the, 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 the Nouvelle Vague went on to have massive influence and fans of its own. And so their recommendations have been passed on. And I think this was a, this was a very, key uh you know endorsement for them to to bring this film to light and i think it is it's just a really impressive story uh that it just you know gives a lot to relate to in terms of the you know the the experiences of, of many many viewers although again i talked about how unique the the setup was you know for the uh stromboli in europe 51 i guess there's probably not too many of us who have inherited a piece of property <laughs> there are, in fact there are probably few pieces of waiting. property on the globe <laughs> that are more appealing and just absolutely <laughs> dazzling than this one and i i was just you know again watching it the other night it's like this guy is just ready to unload this place are you kidding me this is an absolute and to have it just sort of land in your lap <laughs> like that you know, old uncle homer left it to us all well, okay well, how much can we get for it <laughs> do you think that that has a a bit of metaphorical meaning for rosalini at all like here is this treasure yeah and he is willing just to to both of them are willing to let it go um because they've got to get back to their other life and yeah, this isn't just... that important to them it's a complication that they just need to sort of tie up the loose ends and be done with it. Yeah. And even just as, as a representation of their relationship and marriage, like you exactly know, uh, this right. Is, right. This isn't, this isn't working, you know, maybe it works in, in practical terms back home, but as the film goes on, the more that they, they start to kind of, uh, you know, you said the word contempt, I think fittingly feel that way to each other. And, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a powerful, uh, depiction because there are glimpses that they recognize it's a treasure to them mm-hmm. um as the film goes on and it's it's it, tricky yeah. right because because <laughs> they're they're kind of in this very tentative position like you know again it's the idea of marriage as a contract i mean this is a very really all three of these films are very unsentimental presentations or views of marriage where you know true love and romance and yearning and desire and all of that huggy touchy squeezy stuff is kind of like whatever that's maybe just a little phase you go through but once you're actually married <laughs> now you've got to figure out what are we in this for what are we out to accomplish um, and and this is very much a marriage of uh, it's 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 a contract you know he yeah. is an important business executive he needs a wife who looks good on his arm who does the hostessing for all the important people that he com- and comes across uh, <laughs> her end of the bargain is that she'll be shown a comfortable life and and mm-hmm. they'll you know they'll 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 enjoy the finer things 
mm-hmm. but that contract has kind of reached its expiration date, you know, and I think they both realized they could just as easily do without all of that, but they don't exactly know what else they would do. They're just not really content or, um, mm-hmm. you know, focused on, on what would be the alternative. He's the kind of guy who, when he arrives at an Italian hotel, he already has mail there waiting for him. <laughs> yeah, yes. <yeah. laughs> um, but I like the idea. You know, they 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 kind of realize they they could do without this, mm-hmm. but they want more. They can't admit it to themselves, and they certainly can't admit it to the other one because it's way too vulnerable. Because that's, they believe it, it when right the there. other one says, "I don't." I don't love you. I don't value this. They believe the dismissal looks that each of them are giving to each other. Um, and George Sanders is very good at that. Just kind of like, <laughs> look, whatever, I'll just walk away, you know? That's right. Flick his um, ash on you and kind of keep on moving, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they do want more. And I love that this film is able to show that. And and I love the final line of the film, you know, that because... It, it shows a lot of the reason why they're in this pickle in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He doesn't dare say I love you because she could use it against him. Yeah. That's, what a horrible right. thought, but he, he wants to, he does love her and she wants to hear it from him. Spontaneously, and, really, you know, right. I mean, even if she has to sort of wring it out of him at this last moment, <laughs> she, but she's made that turn and that's the thing. You're right. Yeah. You've, you've nailed it exactly. It's that whole delicacy of who's going to be the first to admit, I need you. I'm hurting. I can't, mm-hmm. I'm sad. I'm disappointed because the minute you open that breach up, you don't know if the person's just going to swoop in for the kill and make you feel even worse than, than you already do. Or might this time be the one that gets their attention and you get the response that you're hoping for, which is, I understand you. I I, I trust you. I cherish you. I'm going to protect you and be there for you. Even if I can't be everything you want me to be, even if I can't, even if we can't find a life that's perfectly fulfilling on on every level, every facet uh, of the jewel there, um, I'm here I'm for here you. I'm here for you. Ha, yeah. There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, and, and that is a very common place. And it's a very easy place for couples yeah. to land in. I mean, I've been there with my wife. We, we, yeah. you know, we're not going to get too much into disclosure, but you know, there was a time we had a separation for a few months and, and uh, it was because the same kind of dynamic had played itself out and we were both kind of in our mutual corners and it took us a process to work it back out, get together. And we did. We've been pretty happy and content. We've learned a lot. You know, it doesn't mean all those old mm-hmm. dynamics go away. Just like the end of this movie doesn't mean they're going to just, yeah. you know, launch into this brand new era. But a breakthrough even, has happened, you know. Yeah. Even knowing this and, and figuring out some ways to work it out doesn't mean yeah. it's not going to rear its head again. We're 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 people who want to protect our vulnerabilities. Yeah. And it's it's scary to admit even to someone that you, you love and that you know has said it to you in the past. What if something's changed? What if you know, what if this time they don't say it back? I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. certainly found myself in that situation too where maybe I, I'm not going to open myself up to you because I thought you you know, I don't know. I had a I had a niece once who um w- lived uh, lived nearby, and she would come and visit us. And I just mm. remember one day she came, and the the guy she was dating, um, had 
had done something with family the day before instead of with her. Mm. And so she's like, I'm just not even going to answer the phone. I'm not even going to, to, you know, if he calls or, you know, today I'm just not even going to. And I, I said, look, I'm not trying to get into your business here, but do you, are, do you want to see him today? Like if, the, if not for that, would you be excited? And she said, yeah, I, I, that's why I'm kind of mad is I do want, I did want to do something with him. And I said, look for one minute, just try this. They think about it. When he does call, can you just tell him that instead? You know, yeah. don't, mm-hmm. don't, don't go to the point where you feel like you have to hurt him back or look like what he has done has closed you off to him. Instead of doing that, yeah. just try it. Try, try that. And, and they, they, you know, they got engaged and are married and they're, you know, they're, they're yeah. awesome and I love it. And I take full credit. <laughs> but i counselor was, trevor's badge of honor there it was, just, <laughs> it was one of those moments where i looked at it and i could see because i've done that and i've done it since you know it's yeah, not yeah. and i'm sure she has too but in that moment it was very clear that hey the reason you're upset is because you were hurt kind of and, and vulnerable and so you want to punish and you also want to close yourself off and you want him to him to be the one who opens up and what, what if, what if you could do this? And this film, I think just goes there so well. Um, at the, at the same time, kind of showing that the magic of these, these, this one's a little bit darker, but I, I love books and films where people go on a trip and, and have a, you know, these moments of discovery. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is the enchanted April by Elizabeth Mm -hmm. von Arnhem. Okay. And it's these, these women who, are in kind of unhappy uh, marriages in England or who are maybe, maybe they're not married at all, but they're just unhappy in England and they decide to go on a holiday to Italy of all places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just opens them up. They have time away from it. And there's even, even something like a room with a view, the Ian e. Forster novel and that great merchant ivory uh, film, you know, mm-hmm. a similar thing of, you know, a different culture, a different, a different, perspective and i think this film is doing all that when you realize that again george sanders character can't figure out how to enjoy this oh yeah uh, museums this, bore me you know yeah <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and well th- these aren't just museums this isn't just you know art for art's yeah. sake this is look at this, this is really incredible artifacts foundational mm-hmm, mm-hmm. resonating in and and i love seeing that part of him open up to to getting a little bit of that spiritual you know, a, a strike into his soul mm-hmm. when when they go to Pompeii, when they see these things and start to see the a bigger, richer panoply of human and art and emotion, yeah. and it's not all business and transactions. And and how and how fragile really that 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 relation those relationships are. Our relationships yeah. are. You know, I mean, the, the these lovers presumably you know locked in a final embrace before they're buried in the ash and entombed you know for all time and that moment that that final moment together is is what's discovered as they're pouring the plaster yeah. into the empty space there i mean it's just like it is i mean it's just really profound i mean just let your mind kind of ponder all of that and like we've already mm-hmm. talked about you know the, the 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 ancient works of art and not just the fact that these are really old objects but what they're depicting the the faces the struggles the aspirations of of humanity that is in in time so far distant from us and yet here it is these people lived on this very same mm-hmm. part of the planet they they expressed these thoughts these you know these ideas um 
in a in a way that's durable that that exists on into time for you know hundreds and thousands of years so you know what does that say about the moment that we're in maybe we're not going to craft you know artifacts that will have that kind of longevity but can Mm -hmm. we at least appreciate what we have and what is the reality of this moment this relationship this other person that i've bonded my life to um yeah despite the struggles do we really benefit or gain anything by throwing it away uh, that's not a question that you can answer i mean we've already seen in the other movies uh a decision to step away from a marriage or at least potentially step away for the long haul and rossellini himself had been married and had divorced and so had ingrid bergman so they're not really saying that you shouldn't do that uh they certainly are not going to endorse that kind of a message from their own experience but it is profoundly asking the question and demanding some kind of a considered answer as to what is the value and the importance. And I, I feel the fact that this mm-hmm. end of the trilogy does kind of um, wrap up on that note of reconciliation and of of sticking together. I mean, some people might say that's a bit of a Hollywood tack on ending after all of the nastiness yeah. and harshness that's been you know, displayed for the previous you know, hour and a half or so. But life does go like that sometimes there are couples and there are many of us who've been in those moments of of like vulnerability and surrender because of some outside factor in this case they're surrounded in this religious procession they're among the common folks of the world and there's not really no really easy escape and and they have a moment of rupture where she's just she's done she despises him she's just she's just had it and yet she's swept away in this crowd all of a sudden and she's in danger of almost like drowning in a sea of humanity and that that moment of crisis what what brings them back together so yeah maybe there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of a cinematic bow being put on it but to me it still feels believable and and authentic and and an appropriate place to to stop the story and again let us if we want to speculate draw our own you know to be continued (laughs) at appendix to the film that's been put before us that another thing you know again i i just like how in all of these films rossellini doesn't doesn't let it just play out the way we might expect Mm -hmm. it's not when she sees the art that she starts to to become open and, and express herself to him it's not when they're at pompeii and see that that plaster of that couple that they they don't come together right after that. That's part of their struggle. That's part of, it could almost be a part of their bitterness. Like we don't have that. He does not love me like that. And I don't love him like that. Yeah. It it doesn't necessarily have to represent what they, what they're yearning for in each other so much as a, of an expression of what they don't have in each other. Mm -hmm. And yet it's that, that procession at the end where he almost they they almost look on it with disdain like look yeah. at these people what are how childish of them yeah they believe to... that stuff right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and then just a, a little rupture of of that of that protective shell that both of them have put on themselves leads you to that beautiful moment and again like like you said i believe it it's i don't know if it'll last i don't know um where they will go, but I do believe in that moment they are both expressing something deeper than what they have throughout the rest of the film. I feel like the rest of the film has been 
that shell and the development of that shell, the further armor, you know, putting more armor around them. And that that's the moment where they're finally able to go. I want, I am. (laughs) And, and you're a part of that for me. I might not understand why sometimes you're a big jerk. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the but... <laughs> frustration, the resentment, the the fatigue with it all, that's all pretty real. And that's where they are throwing the barbs mm-hmm. at each other because they're viewing the other as a primary instigator of all of this dissatisfaction mm-hmm. that they're feeling and perhaps, you know, failing to recognize a bit or reflect adequately on how they've themselves have contributed to this. I mean, there's a lot of projection of blame onto the other person on both of their ends. And, but and when to they an are, extent, yeah. you can see why they're they're right. The yeah. other person's been kind of cruel in in yeah. their in their dialogue. Um, I don't care about you. Um, I. I mean, they, 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 they're they both blunt. said very hurtful things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, uh, but, but, you know, it is a question of, well, who started it or I deserve better than I'm getting. And experience has taught me to not really believe that it's going to get a whole lot better there. This person hasn't expressed a willingness or an ability to change. So why would I get my hopes up every time I get my hopes up? It just hurts all over again, you know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if you only, you know, all you can dwell on is the bitterness and the rejection and the cynicism. Um, you're you're not acknowledging the whole of your own being. I mean, there was something that brought them together. There is something that they've they've built a life together, and uh, that needs to be expressed and acknowledged as well. And I think that's yeah. where you end the at, end the movie and you end this informal trilogy on that note. And I think that's a, that's a good place. Uh, rather than to have them just walk in their own separate directions, um, I, I thought it was it was a good balance at the end. And again, just a a really um, yeah, just a, just an amazing performance. Because again, without two actors of of the talent that Sanders and Bergman bring to it, that could have been a, a fumbled scene or maybe just not mm-hmm. as as persuasive as as I did find it when I I've seen it several <laughs> times now, obviously. And I was like, yeah, that gets me every time. Yeah. And I don't know why either, but when I'm more sympathetic to Ingrid Bergman's character, but when Mm. George Sanders says, if I say it, you promise not to take advantage of me. I'm all for him and his, his plight too. I just, uh, it, it really is powerful. And he's not, it's not like he says it with like, do you promise not to, you know, there's a, there's a, twinkle in his voice yeah right (laughs) well let's face it ingrid bergman is a very formidable woman (laughs) right you know i mean yeah 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 she she's a powerful personality a force of nature you could even say you probably don't want to get on her bad side you know um (laughs) she she she's got she can pack a punch um and and that's the thing they they are both both formidable people in their own way. I mean, he's bright, erudite, obviously very successful, uh, razor sharp wit and intelligence. So that can also be pretty scary and intimidating if he decides to unleash his full weaponry, you know, in the, in the heat of a conflict. Mm -hmm. So they're both strong personalities who are pretty capable of doing damage, but they're also sensitive souls. I think like we all are at some level or another who don't really enjoy the, the aftermath of, of these, of this kind of back and forth. And so the mm-hmm. wounds are real, but I think 
underneath it all, there there is there is some kind of connection there that the, they've allowed to get buried, and they've got to find a way to dig it back up. And I think uh, another film that would be a good double feature with this would be Before Midnight. In mm, that yeah. that other box that I think we'll get to sooner <laughs> than later, you know, sometime I'm sure. soon. Sure, definitely. Um, yeah. I love the Before trilogy, and the you know Before Midnight actually very many ways feels like a journey, you know, journey to Italy. Oh Just, yeah, well uh, yeah, and again that that kind of very candid dialogue, almost like in some ways not too good to be true, but it's just so explicit and so penetrating, so thoroughgoing in, in how the, the couple goes back and forth. I mean, yeah, that's that's a great uh, outgrowth, you could say, of, of the sort of standard that Rossellini has established with this film. All right. Well, I, I, I don't want you to think that I'm like creepy, but I did look at your... Um, letterboxed stuff with these and okay. you have you have journey to italy at a as five stars oh yeah and i don't even know if you rated the other ones but i i just kind of thought probably that's based awesome. on years ago because i don't really do star ratings anymore i've decided uh-huh. just to sort of set that aside but yeah no this is a this is a brilliantly executed film and yeah i think i think you could say this is a masterpiece <laughs> yeah you you wouldn't have any problems if it shows up on the sight and sound list yet again <laughs> no, I would expect it to, and I—I I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like what was it, two hundred or two fifty that they put on that list? Um, I can't remember which, but it's okay. Because I—I uh, would I, think Stromboli might have a shot at it as well. I think there's some pretty enthusiastic adherence, maybe in the two hundred rankings if they go beyond that. Could that. be. It'll be interesting. I'm getting yeah. excited to see oh, it now. I am too. I think it's going to be a, <laughs> a an object of. Uh, endless you know fascination and conversation so looking forward to it and it'll be coming out in december is that correct i feel like it's pretty soon but i don't know the exact date i just saw you know with everything that's going on on twitter one of scott nye's tweets was like hey if this is if twitter goes down tonight will someone email me when the site sound goes up (laughs) (laughs) yeah so by the time this video or this podcast goes up maybe maybe that'll be um outdated and everyone be like Twitter is gone, sight and sound is out, but this will go up pretty soon. That just shows the the fast paced uh, world that we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's who's going to be the first one to get the letterbox list up? There, I wonder. You know, that'll be, be a, a race. Be on. Fun. <laughs> um, but let's let's maybe talk a little bit about the box itself. Sure. You you alluded to this. Um, well, I mean, I think you said maybe maybe illusion is a little bit too soft. You say it pretty explicitly. This is a stacked box. This is four discs. Yeah, um, it has its own of disc supplements, of supplements. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, and each disc still has its supplements that are made more related to that particular film. You know, they yeah. have introductions by Rossellini himself. There's um, commentaries. There's different versions of the film on the you know uh, the first the first two. First two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the uh, critic um, that that introduces the films as well. And right now I'm blinking. I was, uh, oh, Adriana Apra. Mm-hmm. Um, his introductions on every on every film. I did think it was interesting. Rossellini looks done. He looks like these films didn't do what I thought they'd do here. You can go watch them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just mm-hmm. was so funny. Just like, yeah, I made these films a while back. <laughs> well, and that was and that was the era where he was getting ready to put his focus more on television. Mm-hmm. I think it was like right uh, 63, 64. So I think like the Louis and, the Fourteenth was coming up in the near and they future. They had separated yeah. by then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. 
they, their their marriage didn't last through through the decade and and so you, and and his, and these films didn't do well um, right. and I don't know if they had yet started to create a more critical buzz maybe maybe with the Kaiyedu cinema you could kind of see it but it might not have been something that you'd feel this may have been something that he did look back on and kind of think all right yeah we'll watch these these films they didn't do as well as I thought they'd do see ya they, I just find them yeah. so fascinating these interviews with him yeah. as short as they are. Well, he, he just seems like such a, a, you know, endlessly curious, you know, forward looking intellectual Mm -hmm. figure, you know, he's always just seeking out the new idea, the new thing and, um, engaging with the issues that are like right before him. And he doesn't seem like the kind of person who really looked back, at least not at this stage, because he's still an active creative presence, but he's looking for a new format that I think, you know, because he was not having Mm -hmm. much success at creating, you know, commercially uh, popular, financially rewarding films um, that would, you know, get the kind of funding that he needed to make the movie that he wanted to. That's where he started looking at television as another outlet, you know, so he started doing these recreations of, of pivotal historic events and the figures of their times and recreating the, those worlds to the best of his ability. And that's what you get in that Eclipse series set. Um, and that's basically where he spent the rest of his uh, filmmaking career is, is kind of working in that format rather than kind of narrative fiction type of stories. It's like, and so those interviews, I think, catch him as he's kind of in between phases there and uh just but this was behind him and so yeah he'll tell you a few things and you know there's some (laughs) there's some print interviews from that same period in in the booklet as well but uh yeah yeah he's uh, these film and i don't even think that his his collaboration with ingrid bergman was seen as as i think we view it now as this remarkable uh you know collaboration between two of the most significant and and fascinating artists in their respective disciplines of of that mid 20th century era for sure i mean it really is quite remarkable uh, i think ingrid bergman has transcended the level of just you know a popular and glamorous hollywood you know super movie star uh, she, she's beyond that she and and the, the whole rest of her career that you know, lasted after these films. I mean, you know, she, she had a hard time finding her niche and she didn't make, you know, a lot of movies uh, as she got older, but she, I mean, she did her uh, autumn sonata with, with Ingmar Bergman. She did the uh, Elena and her men with Jean Renoir, uh, even cactus flower. Some of mm-hmm. her later career stuff is really just, you know, she's a fascinating woman and uh, never seen cactus flower. It's kind of an interesting relic of the late sixties. I huh. definitely, yeah, it's 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 amusing, and and she's quite game to take on that role. She was in Murder on the Orient Express, I believe, as well. So you know, she yeah. she was a yeah, you know, and and then you know she had her struggles with cancer, and and all of that is captured very nicely in in the supplements, uh, particularly the ones uh, with uh, her daughters Pia Lindstrom and Isabella Rossellini really gives a very inside look at that whole time with with home movies and you just get a sense of ingrid the the person the the woman the mother the artist uh, somewhat of an enigma in some ways you know you could never totally get into her head but but you figured it's a fascinating life she's living and uh we're privileged to kind of have have these these uh documents that kind of capture the essence of her personhood 
Um, any other, what other supplements do, do you think are worth kind of pointing out? There's a lot of visual yeah. essays and documentaries. There's yeah. a short film by Guy Madden mm-hmm. um, about, you know, this is my dad is a hundred years old with uh, Isabella yeah. Rossellini. There's a short <laughs> film. There's like home video. It's not home video. It, it's almost like news footage. It felt like to me, mm-hmm. the Rossellini's in Capri, you know, tra- kind of traveling around uh, with their, with their, their children as they're making things and touring for journey to Italy and, and whatnot. I mean, again, it just goes the whole gambit. There are these very personal yeah. films. In fact, I feel like the last disc, disc two of the, the, you know, the, that's just about supplements felt very much like, Hey, this is now going to be our, this isn't about the films. I mean, the films are part of the story, but this is about Rosalini. This is about um, Ingrid Bergman mm-hmm. and their, personal it's much more personal i felt and i just i love that this it's maybe not always appropriate to do this you know with with a box set um but i just love that this is so complete uh well they were public figures as as people they they didn't just make movies like you know there's a lot of directors there's a lot of you know creative talents actors who go out there they do their thing you love them and it's a very enjoyable thing but but there's something deeper that just felt like that's going on with with both Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman as 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 people of their times as as influencers as thought leaders uh, that I think makes it worthwhile to get a get a little bit of biographical insight as to what made them yeah. tick and how they spoke to their times i will recommend a, the short, a short essay called surprised by death by james quant yeah if you if you're listening to the episode and haven't really dug into the set yet that's really nice i think it's like 16 17 minutes it's available on the criterion channel it really gives a nice overview of of how these films were made, how they fit together, how they've influenced others. So a lot of the, even the observations yeah. I've made about the, the, the Nouvelle Vague and all of that kind of are lifted or at least you know, influenced by James Quant's observation. So it's a very nice, tidy um, sort of introduction to this set, even though it's a supplement on the last film of the three. But I would say if you're curious about what this set has to offer, that's maybe uh, a good place to start just to kind of get a flavor of it. Um, but I think, yeah, this, I've completely enjoyed this last, you know, couple of weeks of just really, you know, sampling all, all the goodies and, and the, the, the book of essays is really great. It's got original correspondence between Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini, her very short letter and his lengthy reply, uh, great essays on each of the films that again, put them all in context and, you know, the usual job, but and it's a nicely illustrated bound booklet. And yeah, just, this is a set that I give complete enthusiastic endorsement and recommendation of. And I was going to, if you hadn't, I, I would have brought up that visual essay by James Kant as well, because it's, it's probably my favorite supplement mm-hmm. in the way that it tells a big, big story for, for yeah. the whole thing. And I just think it's put together very nicely as well. And as you're talking about the the booklet, man, there's a lot, there are a lot of essays in here. Um, there's a, one by Richard Brody, one by uh, Dina Yordanova, Elena DeGrada, Fred Camper, Paul Thomas. And then you get into some of the more personal stuff with uh, the letters, the letter that Ingrid Bergman wrote to Rossellini and then his reply. 
that's much longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating to to read how he put that together to respond to her, almost almost discouraging in the first paragraph, like, "Hey, you, you need to know what you're getting into. I do these uh, yeah. things <laughs> on the fly. It's not going to mm-hmm. be easy." However, you should know I would absolutely adore working with you. Like this is not to dissuade. This is to show you I would, you know, notwithstanding all of that, would would love to to work with you. Well, and um, I think also it just shows that he he absolutely turned on the Jets. You know, when he had a chance to kind of get with Ingrid Bergman, he he went all in, which is because I don't I, I don't think it's yeah. fair to assume that Ingrid Bergman wrote him a letter thinking I'm going to leave my husband for you and 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 uh, right. you know start a whole new life. But when when they met, when they met to work together, he he really did seem to bowl her over with with affection, with with uh, energy. With a zest for life, you know. I think one of the uh, there's a there's a one of the supplements with, with a couple of Italian guys who knew Rossellini, and one of the one of the guys says to his friend, you know, Rossellini, that, that guy really knew how to live, like in, in, implying he just he was full throttle. You know, he went for it, whether that was driving his Ferrari around Italy, <laughs> leaving just, people just, in a yeah, just <laughs> right, right, the passion that the that, that he approached it. Uh, he did have kind of that that zest for life, um, which you know has its downside um, because it does leave people behind when you're traveling at a faster pace that they can't really keep up with, and you know, sometimes that's going to come across as arrogance and just being a flat out jerk. So you know, there's there's no escaping that. But he was a compelling figure, and uh, you know, he he made an impact. You got to give him that. Oh well, I'm I'm glad that we got to this this set. Oh yeah, again, yeah. it's kind of like hey, this it it just it does it does remind me of of reaching out to you because again, it came out right when we started doing the Eclipse Viewer yeah. Yeah. Um, together, and it's just been been something that I've been excited to talk with you about for some time, and here it is. It's yeah, now in, it's now going to drift into the past. But yeah, it'll just we, be another move on. <laughs> another checkbox off the list there. But and this, yeah, <laughs> this is a set that's like I say, been on my shelf. I, I've watched the movies, uh, but it wasn't really until the whole pretext of this discussion that I really said, okay, I'm just already going to swim in this thing. I'm just going to take it all in because there is so much. You almost have to dedicate that much effort to getting yeah. through all the supplements. But I'm really glad I did. I really enjoyed the process. And of course, this conversation is a nice culmination of all that planning. And so been a good time, Trevor. We should have, I, I, I should have gone through it and uh, kind of listed the supplements in their running time. I'm yeah. sure there's probably three times the running time of all the move, maybe even four times, you know, somewhere in there of oh, yeah. supplements as, as just being able to watch the movies. And I include both versions of the movies <laughs> in that. Yeah, and I'm yeah. excluding watching them again with the commentaries. I just mean new supplements of footage and, and of, of interviews and all of that. It's, it's, it's a lot, but it has been, a, it has been a delight to, to dig into it. And yeah, I think we know what we're going to do next. Sure. Let's um, talk if, about if, it. If we can tell our, our our listeners here, it's one of the one of the newer sets. I've just I I actually have have gone through the films and have been um, enjoying looking at a, a few of the supplements and um, and it is going to be the Infernal Affairs trilogy, uh, just just recently released uh, by Criterion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you going to be writing up a review on it? 
I'll do a little short one. Yes, I, I, this is one that, that they sent to me. And so I do want Good. to put together nice. something for, for that. But I'll save I'll save all my best takes for the podcast. <laughs> well, of course, where you can really air it out a little bit. Yeah, right, I get it. Right. Um, yeah, which is why I like podcasting over written reviews. Although written reviews definitely have their place, and I, mm-hmm. I do miss doing that somewhat. But uh, I just got my copy of it yesterday, so uh, we'll maybe try to do that. Maybe after the new year, I think is probably a reasonable time because we'll have our so. end of the year stuff on Criterion Cast. I do want to keep that tradition alive or our favorite releases of twenty twenty two and. Uh, We'll, we'll kind of get the gang together and see who's willing to kind of do the countdown once we hit December. Not that far from now. No, no, that's 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 an exciting thing. And I think the Infernal Affairs trilogy will just be the right mood setter for getting yeah. back into the doldrums of work life in January. <laughs> so, you know, well, and it and, and it will be fun to talk about some of the one of the newest Criterion boxes. We certainly got a slew of them on the way. Uh, Lars von Trier. May Zetterling, uh, Michael Hanukkah, uh, with Marguerite Duras just got announced the yeah. other day uh, with t- a two-film box set. Um, all look very appealing and enticing, and of course, there's the whole back catalog of box sets. So I think, I think inside yeah. the box has a pretty long run ahead of it. There, I'm looking forward well, to it, continuing this tradition. It, yeah. If we were looking at potential episodes, we didn't check as many off as we as it grew this year. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were more box sets released than episodes released. So, uh, yes, I agree. I think we've got a lot of fun potential in front of us, and uh, it doesn't. If they keep on doing this, there's no end in sight. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll have to get a franchise out and have other people. Go, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to farm this. I'm going to stick with it. We're going to get them all in. That <laughs> would just be interested out. in the product. I'm interested in the process. So. <laughs> exactly. All, all right, right, Trevor. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will be back uh, here in a few months with the Infernal Affairs Trilogy. Mio